0: This is One in 54, a presentation of Anderson Center for Autism. One in 54 is a weekly show devoted to topics related to autism spectrum disorder.
1: Good morning and welcome to One in 54, the weekly talk show on topics related to autism spectrum disorder. I'm your host, Eliza Bozenski, Chief Development Officer at Anderson Center for Autism. And this morning I'm speaking with Andy Bondi and Lori Frost, who are the co-developers of the Picture Exchange Communication System, affectionately known throughout the autism world for sure as PEX, you've probably heard of it. Andy and Lori, thank you for being on the show and good morning. Good morning, thanks for having us. Good morning. So um, so I'm going to let you talk about yourselves a little bit and give some background about um, maybe what you were doing or what your experiences were prior to um, developing the picture exchange communication system. Can we refer to it as PECS so I don't trip over my words for the rest of the, <laughs> the interview? Okay. Um, and the pyramid approach to education, and maybe you just give us some background, and then we'll get into some, uh, some questions and some detail.
0: Okay. Um, I'm a speech pathologist by training, and I started working with Andy long time ago, over about 30 years ago. Uh, And that's when I started understanding the value of applied behavior analysis to the field of speech language pathology. Mm -hmm. Kind of controversial among speech language pathologists. Yes. (laughs) Uh, So there are those of us who refer to ourselves as behavioral speech pathologists. Okay. And we are a good support system for each other. But it was I had a history of working in the public school programs, and when I met Andy, he was director of a public school program in Delaware, serving kids with autism. And I started doing classroom-based therapy and being very frustrated with not knowing what to do with my two- and three- and four-year-olds who weren't talking. Okay. So I went through the whole range of, let's try speech invitation, let's try sign language, let's try picture point systems. And it was interacting with Andy one day that we realized, well, we need to teach this child to do something to somebody else because that's what communication is about. Mm-hmm. And that's when we had the, the light bulb moment of, well, let's have him give pictures to people rather than point to pictures.
1: Oh, well said. Okay. Lori, Andy, what would you add to that?
2: Well, um, at the time, and I was the director of the statewide program and we had, you know, teachers, speech pathologists, power professionals, we had some people who, like me, identified as behavior analysts, although back in early 80s there was the PCBA process and fun things like that, but um, we were trying to figure out, you know, how to create effective educational environments, both at home and at school and in the community. and. Uh, Laurie actually called me in to work with one child one day, and it was a child who not good at signing, not a lot of vocal behavior, mm-hmm. vocal verbal behavior, and um, he was he was kind of quick at slapping at pictures and looking at this and that, so you didn't know if he was looking at something or not. So that's where I, I happened to be. Six, sitting behind him watching Lori do a little work and we just said let's simplify this because you know there was a board of pictures which was common at the time and point to one of the pictures on the board right and we just said let's simplify it have a single picture and then as I watched him you know kind of looking all over the place and just trying to make him look at Lori, I guided him to pick up the picture and put it in her hand and all of a sudden he's like doing something to her mm-hmm. and, my background, uh, you know, I, I read Skinner's verbal behavior in graduate school and realized, you know, this is, this is really verbal behavior, doing something to someone else who mediates the reinforcer. So right. I, saw, yeah. I quickly stopped helping him, you know, stopped prompting. And all of a sudden, he's now calmly giving her the picture and getting these little toy cars, which was his thing at the time. Yeah. And so he's looking at
1: me like, oh, she finally understands me. Isn't that cool, though, when you see from somebody who's, you know, that that from what I've learned at Anderson, and it's really been a learning process for me here because this is not my field or my background, but I've learned it while watching what goes on here every day is that that is that amazing moment where you see somebody who has probably been frustrated for a tremendous period of time of not effectively communicating the joy of, of, like you said, the difference between, you know, uh, maybe they're touching this because they want something, maybe that we don't really know why, but then that immediate okay. reinforcement, um, which is a big part of applied behavior analysis, right? That big part of handing something to somebody and having that person say, Oh, you like cars, let's play, or what, you know, or handing a car, or, and, 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 uh, Laura, you said it before, the communication is that two-way component. It's an unfortunate um, kind of myth or misnomer to think that communication is all about teaching somebody to just talk. It's actually, communication (laughs) is about finding a way for somebody to have meaningful exchanges with other people in their lives. So I'm sorry to interrupt. That's just kind of how you do things, but that really spoke to me that that moment where you saw what was was happening for that young man. That's great.
2: What throws people, at the use of pictures they think the first lesson is about the meaning of the picture right okay this apple okay. picture means an apple this toy picture means a toy and what we saw was the real issue was how do I get that person to, to do something for me yeah which is not about meaning yet. it's about I'm surrounded by idiots is what some of the kids are experiencing yes. nobody <laughs> understands me you know yes. and I'm angry and I'm frustrated and and all of a sudden, you teach the kid. no, here are these things that you want. We're actually nice people will give them to you. Right. And the response is really pretty simple. Then you have to later on teach meaning. Oh, this picture, not this picture. Right. That's what threw a lot of people, I think, in the field for a long, long time, and still confuses people to this mm-hmm. day. Is that they think the first lesson is this picture goes with this thing, as opposed to what do I do with this picture?
1: Right, right. And we can get into this a little bit later when we get into some of the details, but I mean, just knowing and, and having seen firsthand the use of of um, PECS when it comes to preference assessments, that sort of next level, or maybe it's three levels beyond where it, it leads to the opportunity to then make choices and have preferences and, um, and again, get that reinforcement. And also, at least at Anderson, and I, I think a lot of uh, programs as well, it becomes really part of the um, it becomes connected like communication does for pretty much all uh, I wouldn't even say humans. I think mammals in general, maybe every, every living thing, there's some component about um, moving everything forward um, and making progress where where you're also um, have a deeper understanding of, you know, things like first then, and I'm going to work for this. And this is what I want. I mean, let's be honest Uh, if I'm going for a hike or, or, you know, God forbid, run somewhere. Um, I'm doing it so I can get something else, whether it's, you know, and I think that that's, a, that's something that um, that I've just seen in terms of PECs being very helpful for individuals who are not communicating vocal, with vocal language, or like you said before, Andy, um, effectively with sign. Um,
2: we talk about those kind of, teaching the kids about making deals. Yeah. You know, making a deal with a kid, you know, which to me is the heart of a lesson, starts with me knowing what the kid wants before I let the kid know what I want. Most people think about lessons as, oh, you, you know, sit up, clap your hands, touch your nose, do this, do this, and oh, by the way, then you'll get something. Right, yeah. And and from our point of view, it's the other way around. You know, kids learn to give us a picture when they know we have something good for them. (laughs) Yeah. First, see the good thing. Then they figure out about the picture. Yeah, yeah. And too many people kind of go in the other direction, and right? we think that's a problem.
1: Okay, all right. Very good points. All um, really helpful. Um, so, can we transition for a minute? Uh, we're we're gonna run out of time in our first half here in about two and a half minutes. But um, there's also the pyramid approach to education. You want to give us a, like a two minute summary of that, and then maybe we can dive into it in more detail when we come back.
2: Sure. Um, I developed a pyramid approach was trying to describe to, for people with very different theoretical and experiential backgrounds, how to construct lessons that were consistently applied to kids. Kids only know what we do with them. They don't know what's in your head, your theory, your hope, your intention. Mm-hmm. So we tried to describe um, how do we organize these things? Um, what should we teach? How do I figure out, should I teach this skill? Um, what's the kid's motivators, how does he interact with other people, then what am I going to do about that stuff that drives me crazy what we call contextually inappropriate behaviors? We think too many people start off by trying to figure out how do I get rid of something? He, he's hitting and screaming and mm-hmm. kicking, so we got to stop that right now. And our the pyramid orientation said, no, no, you get to that, but you first have to know what's functional for the kid, what motivates the kid, does he have some fundamental communication skills, then we'll deal with those right. problems.
1: And I would also think, maybe maybe this is part of what you're saying, but the, the underlying meaning for those behaviors, right? That, that um, yes. you know, behavior, all behavior is really some form of communication, so why? Because I would think, and I, again, I've seen it just from being here, that if you would take the approach that it's all about re- just reducing challenging behaviors or socially significant behaviors without a replacement behavior in mind, and which yes. is also predicated on knowing what the person is trying to, to communicate, um, you're kind of dead in the water at that point because um, because you're just taking away instead of replacing or giving. There are no,
2: there are no behavioral erasers. <laughs> yeah,
1: good one. Um, all right. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, I, I'd love to hear more. I definitely want to hear more from you, Lori, about that comment you made about, you know, a, a being a, a very special type of speech pathologist, of which there are some um, and probably a growing number, but there's definitely been some uh, some some interesting um, uh, conversation about that. And, uh, and then a bunch of things here in terms of collaboration and some barriers, maybe some uh, suggestions for people who are getting started in the field or families who are getting introduced to the use of PECs and some advice that you might have for them. Okay. All right. This is 1 in 54, the weekly talk show on topics related to autism spectrum disorder. I'm your host, Eliza Bozensky, and we'll be right back.
0: The 1,200,000 women and men of Rotary have accomplished extraordinary things. They've taught millions of people to read, worked toward world peace, and have nearly eradicated a crippling childhood disease from the face of the planet. But each of those 1,200,000 women and men know they could accomplish so much more. If only they were 1,200,000 and one. Find out what an impact one person can make. Learn about Rotary at rotary.org.
2: And now 1 in 54 continues on 100.7 WHUD. This is a weekly community affairs program presented by the Anderson Center for Autism.
1: Welcome back to 1 in 54, the weekly talk show on topics related to autism spectrum disorder. I'm your host, Eliza Bozinski, and today I'm speaking with Andy Bondi and Lori Frost, who are the co-developers of the Picture Exchange Communication System, otherwise known as PECS, and the Pyramid Approach to Education. So in the first half of the show, when we ended that uh, first half, Andy, you were talking about the Pyramid Approach to Education, and um, I think... You know, a lot of what you're talking about, both of you, is resonating with me because I have the, the fortunate opportunity to, to see it and witness it um, happening here at Anderson. Um, a lot of our listeners are gonna be a little less familiar with this. And, and a lot of our listeners are gonna be families who might be just initially getting introduced to maybe the idea of having and using PECs at home um, or having them introduced to a very young child who's maybe recently diagnosed. So I'd love to come back to some advice you might have for those folks. But, but I want to first sort of cycle back, Laura, you you commented on, um, on your frustration initially being a speech and language pathologist and coming in and starting to work with nonverbal very young children, which got you on this path. Um, you know, whenever there's an opportunity to collaborate or whenever... Whenever uncomfortable, initially uncomfortable collaboration is the solution to, to an issue, there's usually some, um, some experiences that people go through. So I'd love to have you expand a little bit more on um, now that you've got so many years of experience doing this work and seeing the positive outcomes, you know, what has happened, um, both good and bad? What do you think still needs to happen? And what advice might you give to a, to a new up and coming uh, SLP who might be saying, I wanna work with children with autism?
0: Working with children with autism has been the vast majority of my career, and it's only been successful because I've learned about applied behavior analysis. In graduate school, we were told ABA is bad, it's behavior modification, it involves punishment. But going to work in the Delaware Autism Program with Andy, first and foremost, I realized I had been teaching and hoping rather than teaching and expecting good outcomes. um, Mm. I had not been taught a lot about how to teach. I learned a lot about what to teach and when to teach it. But for example, one of the very first lessons I learned was the difference in outcomes from the child's perspective for using a single word, such as saying a single word, signing, pointing to a picture or exchanging a picture. If you think about the outcomes, I was taught, if you have a child who has limited vocabulary, teach vocabulary. And the way you teach vocabulary is by teaching them to label things, label objects, label pictures. And the first time I tried to do that with a child with autism from his perspective is, what's this getting me? Right. What's the point? (laughs) What's the point? Because the outcome for saying that's a dog is I say, you're right. But the outcome right and that child's probably going, I know. Yeah, the outcome for saying, I want a dog is here's the dog. And that's Uh a totally different outcome. Right. So the biggest first eye opening experience for me was switching from teaching kids to comment or label things, was teaching them to ask for the things that they want. And for kids on the spectrum, that is a profoundly different communication skill and a profoundly more Uh, I think, relevant and important communication skill. So that was my introduction to applied behavior analysis, was starting to look at what happens after the behavior, what happens before the behavior. And it's what happens before the behavior that I was really lax on. I thought if I said to a child, what do you want? I had done my job if he said, I want a cookie. But what I realized from working with Andy, the behavior analyst was, you've taught him to answer a question, what do you want? But have you taught him to spontaneously ask for something? Why don't you just try and wait and see if he asks for it without you saying, what do you want? And the answer was no, because I had taught him to answer, what do you want? I had not taught him how to be a spontaneous requester. Mm. So that was my introduction to applied behavior analysis. I am not duly certified as a behavior analyst and a speech pathologist. There is a growing number of those people, but there's still only about 450 of them in in the world. In the world, amazing. Yeah, Yeah. so that's a a growing group, but there's a lot of pushback from what I call traditional speech pathologists.
2: Mm. I think also the the behavior analysts have to understand the skill set of the speech pathologists and the knowledge that they have, which as a sort of traditional behavior mm-hmm. <laughs> analyst, one might not know. I mean, you can read Skinner and you can read verbal behavior. You can understand the analysis under what condition are these things happening. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't tell you like, well, what are the sound sequences? What are the likely blends? What You know, like, why is this kid not saying spider? Because that's his favorite thing. He should be able to say spider. And, and, you know, you tell a speech pathologist, you know, the kid's two years old and he can't say spider and they just laugh. You mean, know, just, you know, like... You can't just arbitrarily take a behavior and say, I'm going to teach it to you. And so mm-hmm. you you need information from multiple perspectives to be able to really effectively work with kids and families uh, that pyramid approach I was talking about—it's not just for the professionals. We teach the parents the same pyramid model. We teach professionals the same pyramid model. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I might go deeper, at, you know, in, in some of the issues with um, certain professionals, but the, the sequence is exactly the same.
0: Yeah, I think a big uh, moment for me was letting go of the notion that I'm the only one on the team who can teach communication.
2: Mm-hmm. And
0: I speech pathologists in school, some of them have amazing caseloads, and they can't possibly be spending as much time with the students as the classroom staff. Mm-hmm. My preference perfect world is I'm going to go into the classroom and teach communication while it's needed in activities across the day, but I also want to be able to leave the staff with strategies for when I leave the classroom for continuing to expect and teach communication all day long.
2: We also want people to understand from a behavioral perspective that... Yes, many behavior problems are serving a communicative function, but not all of them. There are some things that kids are doing that Skinner talked about as elicited behaviors. They're reactive to the situation with minimal control by the outcome. And if we don't understand those things, then we're likely to frustrate kids by trying to sort of teach them to talk their way out of the situation, which doesn't have that kind of solution. You know, learning to wait for something to change is a very different skill than learning to talk your way through it. And um, what we wanted was the team, with the speech pathologists on the team, to take a look at what's driving these behaviors, when is communication a good alternative, which communication skills are those good alternatives as well. We had, you know, much better outcomes when everybody was talking the same language, if you will.
1: Yeah, I, you know, it's it's again a very well said. It. it what's striking me about what both of you are saying is that you've you've been like deeply involved in this in this whole process over the thirty and I think it says in my notes here thirty plus and forty plus years in the field for, as professionals, um, and you've taken sort of. Uh, I think maybe maybe more so with ABA, but maybe SLP too. I don't really know. I have less um, less. I don't have experience in in either tremendously, but but you know, whenever there's a profession that's very specifically taught and has a long history, um, the potential for working in silos and isolation. And like you said, Lori, really like just being, I was taught that this is what you do. This is what you do. This is this is how you do it. Um, is always there. And so it's really cool listening to both of you talk about um, how you've seen that collaborative approach start to take hold, but it is hard work. And, and I don't know that, um, you know, it certainly doesn't seem to me that, that it's it's over, the work is over. I think it's evolving and it's it's changing. Um, but it sounds to me like, you know, you're, you're big proponents of the fact that it can be much more effective, um, both, and this is key, I think for, especially for our listeners in the professional setting, uh, whatever that might be, whether it's a classroom or in, at Anderson, we have residences, there are packs all over, um, our residences and in various forms. I mean, depending, it could be an icon, it could be a picture of a real item. It could be something that's much more manipulatable by an individual, um, or it's something that's still in that phase of, you know, that exchange with the, with the staff member, the team member who's working with them. Um, and also in the home setting, um, or on a, or on a, on a trip, you're probably seeing just as I am, that many resorts, many vacation destinations are starting to recognize that if they have more visual opportunities for people to communicate, um, they're going to have a a larger base of customers and they're going to be able to be more accessible for all. Um, I know I'm talking a lot. I had, I, I wanted to, um, Uh, I might have lost it. Um, I wanted to ask you just specifically if there's advice that you might give that parent of a newly diagnosed child who maybe is hearing amongst a million other things and pieces of advice from all places uh, is maybe being introduced to using PECs at home um, and maybe even being encouraged to introduce PECs to their child's grandparents or siblings. Any advice for folks who may just not know how to start that?
2: I give Lori credit for you know, being a speech pathologist who years ago I think was very brave, because our view was child comes into the program, could have been two years old, some were younger, no verbal skills whatsoever in any modality. We did not wait for them to fail at a speech program to start PEX, We need a punch for communication skills immediately in several environments, so we did that. Of course, we did everything to get speech going. Sometimes, you know, Lori's a speech pathologist. You know, she didn't forget about speech as <laughs> developing pecs. Um But in the meantime, you have these functional skills going. I would say our experiences shown when one particular team, whether it was school, um, usually it was school first. The, the parents kind of followed. A, a step behind. As we were pushing skills or lessons in school, the parents sure. would be just a little behind. So we might start PECS for a couple of days in school. And as soon as that, we got that nice exchange, the parents would be working on getting the exchange going at home. Mm-hmm. And then we started working on discrimination skills. And when the discrimination skills started to come, the parent would start doing that, and we'd be pushing on set and structure. Okay. So um, we have a lot of information for professionals and parents on, on our website, which uh, is pexusa.com. There's also on YouTube. There is a Pex, Pex, global, Pex global channel. Global channel okay. with lots of videos of kids both at school and home and in the community. Uh, Great. Because again, from our point of view, you know, they need to be taught how to behave in the community. With, with parents, sometimes they got oh, like, "There's no way I'm going to do that." And what we want them to see is, yeah, you, you communicate at home and at school and in the community, and all those are, you know, really important places. Right.
1: Well, I think hopefully some of what I'm seeing in in just communities surrounding us and and some. Um, some changes happening, I think, just among our general population. I feel like the autism community is getting, uh, while, while while the numbers are growing, it actually seems to feel as though the community itself is getting smaller because I think more and more people just have a, a deeper uh, awareness of and an appreciation for and an acceptance of the fact that, you know, um, people with autism um, no no matter sort of where they are on the spectrum uh you know deserve and, and need to have access to everything that everybody else has so to your point andy the idea that there should be restrictions or should not be restrictions in terms of setting where communication could occur is is ridiculous in that if you think about that for those of us who who communicate in a in a number of ways including through vocal language um you know, well, I don't have that restriction. Why should anybody else? It I, means it doesn't make sense. Um, I, I, we, I, we have to finish, but I just want to thank you both very, very much for all of your time today. Um, I'd love to have you back maybe for some more uh, pointed discussions, but I want to send out again the information. uh, If you would like more information about PECS and the pyramid approach to education, go to PECSUSA.com, that's P-E-C-S-U-S-A.com, or check out the YouTube channel, which is PECS Global, um, and that's where you can see some great videos, I'm sure, of this in action. Um, Lori Frost and Andy Bondi, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate everything you shared today. Thanks. Thank you. This is One in 54, the weekly talk show on topics related to autism spectrum disorder. I'm your host, Eliza Bozenski, and remember, Anderson cares.
0: You've been listening to One in 54, a presentation of Anderson Center for Autism. Join us for another edition of the show at the same time next week.